You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Much of what we take for granted now in terms of gender equality, the notion that most occupations except for wet nurse are gender neutral, the abundance of research on women in the workforce, women in management studies, and faculties and student bodies with 50% or more women were all being put to the test in the 1960s and 1970s when our guest Myra Strober began her career in academia. Strober earned a PhD from MIT in 1969 and is Professor Emerita at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University and Professor Emerita of Economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. The book is Sharing the Work, What My Family and Career Taught Me About Breaking Through and Holding the Door Open for Others published in June 2016 by MIT Press. Myra Strober, what inspired the occasion for writing this book now? I have been telling my stories to students for years. And one of the things I noticed as time went on is that they have become more and more wide-eyed over the years. And uh, I realized that students today have not heard stories like this before unless they happen to be the children of mothers who themselves went through similar experiences. And I thought, I really need to write these stories down so people understand, as you said in your introduction, that what we take for granted today really is the result of struggles over the years uh, by women and men uh, to gain gender equality. So I started writing, and uh, it took me 10 years to write because I had to stop writing like an academic and start writing like a fiction writer. I uh, took courses on how to do that, and uh, then I thought, uh, okay, here we go. (laughs) One of the best stories for me in the early part of the book is uh, pitching the class to the department head on women in work to have the first class at Berkeley on women in work. Before you were at Stanford, you were at Berkeley. Could you tell that story of, of coming into that class on the very first day of it? Yes, I came into the class on women in work after convincing the department that there was enough material on women to actually have a, quote, whole course, unquote. And before I said a word, before I even sat down, the class applauded. And, you know, I had been at MIT uh, with Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo, who were star professors, and nobody ever applauded either of them (laughs) before they ever said a word on the first day of class. Of course, we all applauded mightily on the last day of class. But these students were so excited uh, to be in a class on women in work. I felt that I was like Joseph in Egypt, uh, meeting out grain to starving people. And one of them said to me, it's just amazing that you uh, were able to get the economics department to agree that you would teach a course on women and work. But also some some disappointment from some students in the first couple classes there. Yes, indeed, because I was uh, what we now call a liberal feminist, and many of the students in that class were radical feminists. And they were not happy or satisfied with the fact that I was going to have the course be about women and work and work and family. They wanted to have topics that they thought were more radical, and indeed they are more radical. I had assigned a book 
by Robin Morgan called Sisterhood is Powerful. And several of the, it was an anthology, several of the articles in that book were about radical feminism. And I had just not assigned those articles. And students said they particularly wanted to read and discuss those articles. One was called uh, Scum, the Society for Cutting Up Men. Uh, I was horrified when I read the article and then horrified that one of the students wanted that in the syllabus. So I had to learn that even if I were opposed to cutting up men, I had to uh, agree that that belonged in the class and we had to talk about uh, why I was opposed to that kind of radical change and what kinds of changes I was proposing. It was very educational for me to teach that first course. You started the Center for Research on Women at Stanford, which is still going strong. It's been yes. renamed. Yes, it's now the Clayman Institute for Gender Research. But you joked that uh, you would close it down once sexism is dead. Yes. It has, it has not closed down. <laughs> when the center came up for uh, permanent status at Stanford, uh, one of the men who was making the decision uh, told me he was very nervous about having a center like this. Uh, with no closing date. And would I agree that when these problems were solved, that the center should be sunsetted? And I smiled to myself and said, oh, yes, indeed. As soon as the problems are solved, we will uh, sunset the institute. You came to MIT. Uh, uh, it was 7% female in 1969. You cite that Stanford was 2% female when you came in 1972. Today, MIT is 22% female faculty. The Sloan Business School is 41% um, female in, in its student body. Still work to be done? Yes, still work to be done. It's interesting that medical schools and law schools are now 50% women, but business schools like the Sloan School and Stanford's Graduate School of Business are not 50%. I've thought about that a lot. I think part of it is because you can't be a lawyer or a physician without going to law school or business school, but you can be a business person and indeed a very successful business person without getting an MBA. And so I think that's part of the reason. I also think that law school and medical school allow people to apply directly from undergraduate school, and business schools by and large don't. And so by the time women are ready to apply to business school, they are already coming close to their childbearing years. And, I mean, I don't know how many of them actually do a serious economic calculation, but they may feel that they have fewer years in which to uh, get their career launched before they have children. Perhaps for some of them it doesn't seem like such a good investment. Talk about women in academia in Europe in these 50 years. Nowadays we hear about um, faculty being wooed to a university with promises of, you know, $1 million packages for salary and benefits and, you know, graduate students and so forth. Well, give us a sense of the starkness of the paycheck for, the, you know, the take-home pay for a, for a young Ph.D. single woman in the 60s when you were starting. I believe that there was not much difference between men's and women's starting salaries. I say in the book that the year that I was on the job market, Bob Solo in the economics department was the faculty member who was shepherding us through the job market process. And I don't think that he would have condoned 
uh, big salary differences between men and the very few women that uh, were there. And I don't think the salary differences at the beginning were very great. I also know that that was true uh, for graduates of Stanford's business school, because I did a study in 1974, which was the first year that had enough women in the graduating class to do a study comparing women and men. And their starting salaries in 1964 were identical. And just to give you a sense of the numbers, those starting salaries were about $16,000 per year. Then I followed up and did a study at the business school uh, four years later, and uh, the difference in salaries was uh, quite pronounced. I believe it was about 20%. Um, The reasons for that were that some women had taken time out of the labor market, and when they came back, they faced a huge salary penalty. Now, I don't know whether that's because of the kinds of jobs they sought or the kinds of jobs they were offered, or both. Uh, And then also, there were no women in the two fields that were the highest paid, uh, real estate development and investment banking. We see this pattern today. Starting salaries for college graduates, men and women, are very similar, particularly if you uh, hold constant their field. But once um, four, five, six years elapse, then you begin to see uh, large salary differentials. You didn't give an introductory lecture in your job interview at Stanford, but shortly thereafter you did. And uh, this is a um, climactic moment in the book, you could say, where you're encouraged not to pursue research, essentially, and um, uh, publish on child care and, you know, the effects of women's earnings on, on their families and you write, I think to myself, you people are not paying me enough to sell my soul. If I'm not going to be able to do research on the questions I care about. I'm going to go get a better paying job. I'll work for Wells Fargo or Bank of America. It definitely required some courageous terrain for you at moments of your life, no? Yes, and I look back in that, <laughs> those moments and I think, what was it that motivated me to um, be so persistent? And I think that I was so fired up about doing research on child care and also on what I call occupational segregation, why men seem to monopolize the high-paying jobs and women were left the other jobs, um, that you know I was willing to take whatever risks I needed to take in order to do that research. And I, I didn't really care that I might be penalized for doing that research because I felt that if I were penalized, then, you know, my MIT PhD would stand me in good stead and I would go find a job in a corporation that paid me more than double what Stanford was paying me. Nick Kristoff, after uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, acceptance of the Democratic nomination last week, uh, wrote a headline. Uh, the headline was, when women win, men win too, that the spending on child care and on health care and so forth. Congress has traditionally approved those those measures once women got the right to vote and then once women were, were in Congress and so forth. Well, I think that it is true what uh, Nick Kristoff says. I see the men in my class now. I'm still teaching at the business school at Stanford, one course a year on uh, work and family. And I now have 40% of my students uh, are men. And I see those men and compare them to the men I knew when I first started teaching at the business school. 
And these men um, have a much fuller life. They are excited about becoming active fathers, you know, not tomorrow, but eventually. Uh, They are excited about marrying women who also will have demanding careers. I think many of them remember their own childhoods uh, where their father was virtually absent because he was working so hard, and they don't want to be those kinds of dads. The challenge for this election year is to allow men to be partners with women in these enormous social changes that are taking place. Um, And I think Hillary Clinton's uh, proposals for reforming the child care system and paying child care workers good wages so that we can get people into that field who know how to take care of children and raise the quality in child care, that's going to benefit everybody, men, women, children. I think that having um, men benefit from a world where they are not the sole breadwinners, where they share that burden with their wives, um, assuming they're married or in single-parent families, where women are assured that they can uh, provide for that family, that benefits everybody. Because, of course, a lot of the children that single women are raising are boys. So, you know, we don't have this strange divide where only girls and women are going to benefit from that. You write towards the end of the book, the the gender revolution has stalled, and one can imagine um, the stalling continuing. We are stalled. But at the same time, I think we are poised to take off again. And so I hope we do, uh, because there would be so much benefit from having a world where children are well cared for while their parents are working and uh, their, their intellectual growth is taken care of and their emotional growth is taken care of. And at the same time, parents are able to pursue careers and make contributions in the workplace. Issue a call to action to MIT alumni, uh, your fellow alumni, to rethink their positions on women and work. In the evaluations of my class, year after year, some of the men say that the most important part of my class for them was their realization that if they're already married or when they become married, that they shouldn't allow their wives to make decisions about leaving the labor force by themselves, that those decisions really are family decisions, and that men um, have a role to play in encouraging their wives and others they know to stay in the workforce and to help them to do that by sharing the work at home. I'm delighted that my book is called Sharing the Work. (laughs) And that figuring out together how to make it possible to have two careers so that their wives are not, I say wives, but also sisters and friends, are not in the position of, you know, basically um, allowing the human capital that they've appreciated all over over the years to now languish. So my call to MIT men is to discuss this with the women in your life. Uh, Talk about uh, how you might help them to both raise children and remain in the workforce. And to the women, my call is do it. Uh, Figure out how to do it. It can be done. (laughs) 
Tell me what else you're reading right now. I'm reading All the Light We Cannot See, yes. I thought that was an extraordinary book from the point of view both of the woman and the man and uh, France and Germany and setting it all in World War II. And as I say, I'm, I'm contemplating writing a novel, and um, that was an inspiration to me. And I'm reading uh, some poetry uh, to become inspired, and um, I just finished a 1974 book by a journalist called Breast Cancer, um, because I think there's going to be something about breast cancer in my novel. Myra Strober's new book is Sharing the Work, What My Family and Careers Taught Me About Breaking Through and Holding the Door Open for Others. You can find it in your favorite local bookstore or online. Myra Strober, thanks for joining me. You're welcome.